I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Tonight we're going to talk about Daniel 11, which is the literally the most prophetic passage of the entire Bible. There are about 135 prophecies in 35 verses. So, buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> um, this will be... Um, Probably the last of these, this type of study. I will move on from here to prophecies about Jesus for next time. And we'll talk about the unity of the Bible, science, archaeology, and these other evidences for the Bible. Um, but this particular study is going to be one of those, boy, that's a lot of info. Which is why, of course, it'll be online. Give me a, like a, a week or two and I'll get it up on, onto the web. And it'll have all this information on there as well. And I'm happy to even give you the PowerPoint if that's something that you think will help you in some way. Um, So here we are, Daniel 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 2. And he says, Daniel 11, 2, it says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So Daniel 11, 2, it begins by saying there's going to be three more kings, three additional kings in Persia. Now, Cyrus... He was the current king in Persia at the time this prophecy was given. It was in the third year of Cyrus. We read from earlier in the chapter, earlier in the passage. Um, But then after Cyrus came uh, Cambyses II, and then Pseudo-Smerdis, unlike the full-blown Smerdis. No, I'm just kidding. And then Darius I. Okay, so there's three more kings. Right? There's three more kings. Then the fourth, the fourth king shall be far richer than them all. So the, actually the highlight of the prophecy here is so far the fourth king. It was just, there are going to be three more. Well, history agrees. There were three more. And the fourth king was Xerxes I, r- ruled from 46 to 465 BC. That's his time of reigning. He was definitely richer than the rest. He actually is the king that we read about in the book of Esther. Isn't that interesting? As his name there is Ahasuerus. And of course, these kings have multiple names in different regions. They're called by different names. But he was the richest. He ruled during the time of the greatest power of the Persian Empire. That Persian Empire that was the last empire of Daniel's life that we've been, we've been looking into as we've been looking into Daniel. And he actually did go into Greece. He got an army of several hundred thousand, several hundred thousand, and he went into Greece in 480 B.C., So he did this. So, of course, the fourth shall be richer than them all. That is, in fact, uh, true. He's known because of the great taxes he levied. He got a lot of money from the people, and he had these very lavish builds. He went over here to build, and over here to build, and over here to build. Xerxes was a great builder. That's what he was known for. And, of course, then he got a great army, as it says, by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Armies cost money. And basically, you had, to, you had to get the riches to do not only the building projects, but to build the army, to pay the troops, to then go out and conquer. So he goes out against Greece. And according to historians, Herodotus, I believe, is the one with this detail. He says that this was the largest army ever fielded up until that time. Of course, the population of humans on Earth has radically gone up since then. So it might not be considered the biggest army now. But at the time, it was the biggest army of the time ever on the field. And so he stirred up all against the realm of Greece. And there he goes against it. But his troops and his fleet of ships were destroyed. And through a long protracted battle, he then comes back, sort of whimpering back to his own land. So that was Xerxes I. And that's pretty much all we get about him. Now we're going to move forward to another guy. 
And this is pretty much how this prophecy works in Daniel 11. It's like, then this king does this, and then it's like, next generation. And then next generation. And then next generation. It's like Star Trek. You know, there's just, you keep getting a new generation of, for you Trek fans. <coughs> then it says, then a mighty king shall arise, verse 3, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now, this mighty king that will arise is, of course, Alexander the Great. Um, you'll see as we continue in the passage, as we get to verse 4, it'll make more sense, but it's Alexander the Great. Now, this king's not a king of Persia. He's a king in Greece. Greece is over in the Mediterranean, as, whereas Persia is over in, you know, Middle East and, 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 and going east. And so, let's, um, let's read on. In fact, do you remember Alexander the Great? Let me back up for a second. Alexander the Great, we, we read about in Daniel chapter 7. He was the winged leopard prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 with four heads. In Daniel chapter 8, he was the one-horned flying goat. And then almost said uh, one-eyed, one-horned flying purple people eater there. But, but no, that, that's not the prophecy of the Bible. There's something else I'm thinking of. But yeah, Daniel in, uh, has already two times talked about Alexander the Great in specific detail. And so now he mentions him again, although he gives much less time to him in this particular passage. Verse 4, it continues on. It says, and when he has risen, that would be Daniel, I mean, uh, Alexander, when he's arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. Now, sometimes you're reading the Bible and you read a phrase like four winds of heaven. This is one of those passages that makes it very clear that the phrase four winds means four directions, north, south, east, west. They just called it the four winds. You can't divide a kingdom into four winds. Like it was divided north, south, east, west. There was his kingdom was split four ways, a chunk in the north, a chunk in the south, a chunk in the east, and a chunk in the west. But it will not be accord, among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. So it will be a weaker kingdom, and it won't, be, it won't go to his children. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now we talked about this before, so this is kind of review. But Alexander, upon his deathbed, was asked, Alexander, who does your kingdom go to? And he said, does anyone remember what he said? To the strong. So they fought. <laughs> so they fought to take control of the kingdom. And when the dust settled, <coughs> Alexander's four of his generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, they took over and split up his kingdom into four pieces, pictured here in this extremely high-quality map I have copied onto my PowerPoint for you. So Cassander, he takes uh, Macedonia and Greece, that area. Lysimachus, he takes Thrace, Bithynia, and most of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And then Seleucus, he gets Syria, which is the orange area there, which is a large area. And, of course, areas east of Syria, including uh, Babylon. And then Ptolemy, Ptolemy got Egypt and probably Palestine and Arabia and Petraea. So he took basically that south. And we're made, mainly going to be concerned with the orange and the purple here. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But this is, this, was, this is what happened. I mean, we talked last time about how Daniel was written well before these events happened. And he's just detailing it out. Xerxes is going to stir up all against the realm of Greece. That's exactly what happened. Then he goes back. Then a great king arises. In fact, it's Alexander the Great that arises. Comes from Greece and he takes over. And then his kingdom is split upon his death. He died very young. And then as soon as he established this massive kingdom and was planning on making it bigger... Then he dies. So we will read on. We will read on. Daniel 11.4, just to remind you, it'll be divided up to the four winds of heaven. 
It won't be among his posterity. Both of these were true. It was divided, a north-south-east-west chunk of the empire. Um, and, and by the way, these directions are from Jerusalem's perspective. North of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, east and west of Jerusalem. It's all, Daniel's prophecies are largely centered around Jerusalem. It's, in fact, it's called the glorious land in the book. It's like, this is the, this is the focal point of it all. Um, not among his posterity, it went to his generals. He had kids, it did not go to them. They did not end up ruling his empire. And it was not according to the dominion with which he ruled, which means that it was much weaker. Alexander the Great's empire was massive and powerful, but then there was a fractured empire that was not nearly as powerful as it had been. In nitty-gritty detail, fulfilled. I love this. It's absolutely amazing. So now, as we continue, the rest of Daniel, of, of at least Daniel 11, the part we'll cover, which is verses 5 through verse 35, moving forward, the rest of this deals with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. That's who we're most interested in. We're interested in the orange and the purple on your screen. Unless I'm colorblind and don't know it. <laughs> that should be orange and purple. Or, so, or for a guy, that's orange and purple. For a girl, there's some fancy names for those colors. <coughs> the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids. The name Seleucus was then passed on to their sons, and the son, 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 son. And so there's Seleucus I, Seleucus II, Seleucus III. Then you've got Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy VII, Ptolemy VIII. They continue these names on. We're going to follow these lines and how they battle each other and how they go against one another. And the reason why is because what's right in between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids? What's in between their two empires? Jerusalem, Israel, the land of Judah. God's, God's people is right there. And so it's a prophecy about the, f- the future, the several hundred years um, after the end of, in fact, even the Old Testament. People call it the silent years. Maybe not so silent. <laughs> God, God even told them what was going to happen during a lot of this time. And so they're battling and they'll be trading off control of Palestine, or I should say Israel, during this time. So let's read on. Daniel 11.5. It says, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Now we're going to get these terms, king of the south and king of the north. They'll be repeated over and over again as we go through Daniel here. The south would be which kingdom? Anybody want to guess? The purple, right? The Ptolemies. Those are in the south. That is the, the king of the south. Now why is it just calling the king? Because there's different kings. It covers a large period of history. So it doesn't just give a name. It just says the king of the south. And then it's the next king of the south. The king of the north, on the other hand, is going to be Syria because they are up north of the Ptolemies. So now north, south, north, south. The other two, uh, Lysimachus and Cassander, their kingdoms just kind of crumbled, and so they end up not being really important on the scene. So we don't have east, north, south, east, west anymore, just north and south. All right, so if you're not confused yet, you're doing really good. (laughs) So the king of the south is going to be actually General Ptolemy I, who is the king of south is Egypt, that Egypt region, and he reigns from about 323 to 380, uh, 285, excuse me, 323 to 285. We're BC here, so time unwinds in reverse. One of his princes is going to overpower him and have great dominion. That's very interesting. That is going to end up being, um, well, let me, let me see if I, I can get there in just a second. All right, so the king of the south shall become strong. Ptolemy, in fact, did. Of all the four kings, uh, the four directions that were split up, only two of those kingdoms became truly strong. It was, it was this, the king of the south, Egypt, and the king of the north, Syria. So that was 
Ptolemy the first. There he is, king of the south. Ptolemy. He's got a, a nice, robust chin. There you go. I always, I'm always interested to know, like, how accurate, I wonder, are these busts, you know, um, and these pictures. They're, they're often done by artists many generations after these people lived, uh, based on coins and things like that. But, but anyway, in the coins, he definitely has, a, he's got a chin on him, you know, he's, he's chinny. So, um, but there was a lot of incest also going on in royal families, so <laughs> it has something to do with pronounced features because of that sort of thing. But that's a whole other study, isn't it? So that's the king of the south, Ptolemy, definitely uh, the purple king, right? As well as one of his princes. So Ptolemy, the king of the south, he's going to have a prince or, a, or, or someone in, in governmental authority. But this prince is going to gain power over Ptolemy, and he's going to have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. Well, this actually ends up being detailed, fulfilled, Seleucus I. Seleucus I. Now, he's up there in the, north, the northern kingdom, the king of Syria. This is a, a later copy of a, Ro- a Roman copy of another ancient bust of him, but there he is. This guy was actually what's called a satrap or a governor or a prince under Ptolemy. He was, he was given control of Babylon and some other areas, but he used his political maneuvering and military maneuvering to actually end up claiming that whole region for himself. And so he was actually... A, a satrap under Ptolemy from 316 to 312 BC for four years. He was one of his princes. And then it turned into him having his own kingdom. In 312 BC, he just took over and said, I got this kingdom. Ptolemy didn't have the ability, the power to stop him. So he had power over him. Isn't that interesting? Like just the neat little details. I just love this. I love this. I mean, we can't miss this. Um, so often people will hear prophecy, see prophecy, hear the fulfillment, see the, the legitimate proof of it. And they'll just go, huh. You know, and, they, and, and they'll withhold belief. And the reality is they're withholding belief because they will withhold belief no matter what they see. Because it's not an intellectual issue that's going on. It's something else that's going on. But I think that, that mostly prophecy just radically encourages believers. You know, those who look at the word and they go, wow, that's so neat. That's so cool. That's so encouraging. And it does sometimes transform an unbeliever, though, into a believer. And we've seen that happen. So that's why we share it. Daniel eleven six. Moving on, we're just going to continue verse by verse. It says... And at the end of some years, which ends up being about 40 plus years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. It's normal for daughters to go up to be uh, basically given away as brides to try to create peace treaties with different nations. But she shall not retain the power of her authority and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So there's a plot, like she's going to go up there, and the intention is, okay, I'm Ptolemy, I'm going to send my daughter up there, then I'm going to get my blood in the royal line. Eventually, maybe I, I will be able to annex and take over this, this, um, uh, this country. That, that would be a thought. So in, ultimately here, the king of the south loses out on this deal, um, but the story's not over yet. But so here's what happened. The daughter, uh, the king of the north is, uh, is actually um, a guy named Antiochus II. Now, we're moving the king of the north. We're just traveling through history here. Antiochus II. The king of the south is Ptolemy II. So this is just one generation after the initial creation of these two empires. The daughter is a lady named Bernice or Berenice. Berenice was sent to the north 
where that king, Antiochus II, he divorced his current wife, who was named Laodicea, um, but he did marry her, and, and then divorced his wife, and, and she had kids from him, but they all got disowned. Like, you're not part of the royal family anymore. But as soon as the Ptolemy II died in 246, as soon as he died, right then, so this is where the betrayal comes in. Antiochus II, he dis, discharges Berenice, says, yeah, I don't, I don't need you anymore, takes his old wife back. So he only kept the treaty as long as, as that guy was alive. Then Laodicea, true story, poisons Antiochus II, has Berenice killed, and puts her child on the throne of the empire. Yeah, it, yeah, it sounds like a, like, you know, like a sitcom or, a, no, <laughs> not, not so much comedy, I guess, but it sounds like one of those types of shows, right? So let me read it again with that in mind. Berenice goes up there. The original queen is deposed. She's taken out. Then when her dad dies, she's put aside, and the original queen comes back, kills the king, poisons him, kills her. She's hiding. She runs to a city and flees and hides, and she has her killed, and then puts her child on the throne. So it says, right, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. And neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. And everybody who was part of that plot, it all, it all failed. Really, really neat stuff. And these, these are confirmed in extra biblical accounts. This isn't recorded in the Bible because there were no biblical books written during this time period. This is all confirmed through other histories and documents. <coughs> Pardon me. So we move forward. Daniel uh, 11, verses 7 and 8. It says, But from a branch of her roots, from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Just all these little details about what's going to happen. Um, now, why is it important that we know this? It's just important that you know God is speaking. It's like he's showing off. I'm just going to tell you a bunch of stuff that hasn't happened yet. And you're going to know that this is me. What is a branch from her roots? Well, her roots, this lady, her roots would be her father. And the branch of the roots would be her brother. So I'm up here, I'm a branch, there's the roots, and there's another branch, that's my brother. Well, her brother, Ptolemy III, Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, he reigned from 246 to 222. He actually invaded Syria, the king of the north, because of the murder of his sister, Berenice. I mean, it was like, forget the peace, right? We're at war now. So he goes in there and he invades Syria, and he got all the way as far as the Euphrates, which is quite a good distance invading. He got a hold of Laodicea, the woman who had killed his sister and, and poisoned her husband, and he killed her. So the details of this are very specific. He plundered, he took their gods, and he did, of course, when you, when you raid an enemy country, you plunder. This is what you do, right? This is just, hey, it's how it's done. <laughs> so they always plunder. Now, interestingly, because the year that his dad died was the year that Antiochus II was killed by his wife, right? They, the king of the north and king of the south died in the same year. So then uh, they both had a new king in the same year. So Ptolemy III, he started reigning the same year as Seleucus III up in the north in 246. Now it says here in the bottom of the verse that he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Well, they started reigning the same year. 
but the king of the north, Seleucus, uh, excuse me, Ptolemy, um, I'm sorry, Seleucus III, the king of the north, he died in 225, and Ptolemy III died in 222. So he continued three more years than the king of the north. They started the same year, and he reigned for three, much, three years longer. Again, this stuff is con confirmed in extra-biblical sources. It's just what happened. And you really see, I mean, this combined with the stuff we did, what, three weeks ago? You can see, this is why they said that had to have been written after the fact. Because you can't hardly say, well, that was just a lucky guess. It's too many details. You, you can't get this kind of a lucky guess. So, but, of course, we did it in the last video. We talked about how... Um, they did not. This was not written after the fact. Every piece of evidence supports that it was written before. So it's just beautiful. Uh, Daniel 11.9, as we continue, it says, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. This happened in about 240 BC, when Seleucus III, um, he, he went up and he, tr he had a, a, an attack against, you know, another revenge, a revenge, a re-re-revenge. What do you call that? Revenge Venge? I don't know. He came down and he's like, I'm going to go and attack the king of the south. And he did. He brought his army, but he failed. So he returned to his own land. So it was a failed attack. That was Seleucus III. And he went back home. However, verse 10, his sons, the king of the north now, because he's the one who just came and attacked the king of the south, failed, went back. But his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces so together, two sons will stir up strife and gather forces, and one, one of those sons, shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So this, um, this guy, the sons of Seleucus, were Seleucus and Antiochus. Sorry about all the re repetitive names. This is what they did. <laughs> they just repeated their names. Don't name your kids after you. Trust me, I know. <laughs> it's just confusing, especially with modern social media. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, they, um, there are two sons, they both had power, but Seleucus was murdered, and then Antiochus III now, he takes over, and he successfully invades Egypt. So this, in detail, is fulfilled. Now you get to the point, maybe right about now, where you're going, okay, I can see how this is getting a little confusing. Um, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, if I had a, a, a quick, easy way to just simplify all of it, it'd be nice if they had, you know, different names. Instead of Seleucus III, Antiochus III, you know, that would be nice. But this particular Antiochus, we're going to spend a little bit of time on him. So he's, the, he's one of the sons of the king of the north. He stirs up strife. He's the one where it says, one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. He actually invades Egypt several times during his reign, during his, his regency. But this particular king of the north, Antiochus III, is famous in history. He's called Antiochus the Great. Because he did a lot of great stuff as far as kingdoms and kings are concerned. He did a lot of really, really great things. Um, so Antiochus III, that's who we're going to look at. Uh, Daniel 11, verses 11 and 12, it says, and the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with them with the king of the north. So the king of the south here is a guy named Ptolemy Philopater, and he goes out and he fights with the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hands of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Now, this is actually a very famous battle that took place in a place called Raphia. It's called the Battle of Elephants. 
And there were almost 200 elephants involved in this battle. And we have the numbers of the soldiers and everything recorded from historians. It was about 70,000 soldiers on either side. And they came and they battled. Of course, elephants in battle aren't, I mean, they're not really, they're huge and intimidating and powerful animals, but they're not always great on the battlefield with the screaming and the yelling and all the fighting going on. So some of the elephants fled to the south and then, and then, this caused the armies to be, and some of them fled to the north, so this caused the armies to be like split up into like three different battles going on. Uh, but, but when the dust settled, Antiochus III's army was destroyed, absolutely destroyed. About 70,000 foot soldiers, 5,000 horse, horse-bound soldiers, and um, 73 elephants, and the other multitude. Uh, ba- basically, he went back to Egypt and... He just went to go live up a sinful lifestyle. This is the king of the south. He he could have pressed on. He could have pushed forward, but he didn't. He was he was a debauched king. He had a reputation. Uh, Ptolemy Philopater, he had the reputation of he just wanted to live it up. So after the battle, he succeeded. He got enraged. He went out and fought. Then he just came back and thought, I'm good. Antiochus, however, went back to plot. So this is what happened. Now, verse 13 and 14, it says, For the king of the north will return. He will return. And muster a multitude greater than the former. He's going to get a bigger, a bigger battle going on. And shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those days, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision. But they shall fail. Or fall, excuse me. So who is your people referring to? Yeah, Americans. No, yeah, Israelites, right? These are... Jews are going to partner with Antiochus III for this particular battle. He's going to stir up a great army. He's going to reach out to lots of people. In fact, this was 14 years later in Antiochus's history. 14 years later, Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, he comes back with a bigger army and a bunch of other people join him this time. Philip, the king of Macedonia, that king joins him. Egyptian rebels join with him that are stirred up against their own kingdom. And even Jews, Josephus specifically records this, that Jews did, in fact, partner with Antiochus the Great for this particular battle. It says that they'll fall. Uh, The reason why they'll fall is because Antiochus, who seems to be delivering them from the king of the south, is actually going to be treating them very badly. And so his harsh and cruel treatment of the people of Israel, and it sets up a terrible terrible treatment of them coming very quickly, the worst, the worst in their history, um, and certainly in any, any history they've known. And so they, um, they would never have partnered with Antiochus the Great had they known this. They would never have done this. This is why they'll exalt themselves thinking, oh, we know sometimes it, it's dangerous to pick sides in, in war, <laughs> you know, when you don't have all the info. And so they, but they do. Um, now, Ptolemy IV, down in the south, is now ruling, and he is a child, and this helps Antiochus III. So the previous king that beat Antiochus last time, 14 years ago, he's dead. His child is reigning, but he's a child king, and this helps them. This is, it means that the kingdom is, 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 is not as cohesive, the decisions are not as clear, and advisors are kind of in charge at this point. So that's Ptolemy IV. He's now ruling, and of course they fail, and... Um, Let's read on. Verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. 
but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Glorious land being Israel. So up until now, we have the, um, the, the king of the south controlling areas of Israel. But now, the king of the north, Syria, will now be controlling the land of Israel. Israel is not here an independent nation. They're subject to the south, and they'll now be subject to the north. So this first fight was actually at a place called Panaeus, at the headwaters of the Jordan River. If, if, raise your hand if you've been to Israel. You guys got to go. It's really neat. So just me and my wife. <laughs> Sorry. Showing off. But it's really, it's really neat to go there. It's a great trip. It's a lot of fun. Um, I get a little tired of the food after a while. But my wife doesn't. So, uh, But yeah, it, in Israel, there is the Jordan River, which flows. And it pretty much is, for a large part, the border between Israel and Jordan. <laughs> and this river, it comes right out of the mountain. I mean, the, the, the snow cap on the mountains sits there. It seeps into the porous rock of the mountain. And it just pours right out of the mountain. There's the Jordan River. And so it flows all the way down all the way south past Jerusalem, all the way into the Dead Sea, where that, where that river ends. It flows into the Sea of Galilee, and I mean, it's, 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 an, it's a, a neat thing. Well, this river, um, at the headwaters of this river, a place called Panaeus, or Panaeus, this is where this battle took place. The king of the north shall come, and that first fight was against an Egyptian general named Scop- Scopus. Now, again, the, the king, the boy king, was not out on the battlefield, but Scopus was. He met Antiochus's troops, Antiochus the Great's troops, and he fled. And so he fled from that, the headwaters of the Jordan. He fled into a fortified city, and that would be Sidon, the city of Sidon. And a siege mound was built against Sidon by Antiochus the Great, and he conquered it, and Scopus surrendered. Now, it specifically mentions choice troops, even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist in verse 15. There were three other leaders, military leaders that went out to deliver Scopus as he was being sieged in Sidon. Europus, Minocles, and Damaxinus. And they all failed. And nobody was able to deliver him. I mean, it's just the details. The details. According to Jerome, after Antiochus got control of the military and took over and they surrendered, he sent the troops away naked just to, just to embarrass them, to dehumanize them, you know. And he did this. Um, so he gained control through this battle. He gained control of Israel all the way down to Gaza. So he started at the headwaters of the Jordan at the top, north of Israel, and he got control all the way down to, to Gaza. Now we know as the Gaza Strip. Verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with strength, the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, thus he shall do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. Uh, the, the daughter of women, all this stuff, let's, let's unravel these details. So Antiochus the Great, he gave his daughter Cleopatra to the eight-year-old king of the south, Seleucus V. So this eight-year-old king now is going to marry the daughter of the king of the north. Why do you suppose he wants his daughter to marry this eight-year-old king? Yeah, he's going to try and get, get a foothold on the throne of the king of the south. I want, to, I want to control this kingdom. You know, that's the idea. The whole idea is they want to control one another, which doesn't work in kingdoms and doesn't work in marriage. <laughs> but yet people still try and do it. <coughs> but what's interesting is it didn't work. She won't stand with him or before him. So his daughter Cleopatra, as she gets older, 
as this boy king gets older, she picks the boy, she picks her husband over her father. And so she doesn't stand with her dad and she sides with her husband. So she's loyal to the south and not to the north. And so this ploy doesn't work. This ploy doesn't work. Interesting. Verse uh, 18. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. The coastlands here being in the Mediterranean Sea. So he went down to Egypt. Now he's going to go up up north of there, up to the Mediterranean Sea, I guess from your perspective, this way. <laughs> and he's going to go to the coastlands, which would be in the area where Rome was beginning to get power, was beginning to become a thing. Um, so he turns his face to the coastlands, shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. Someone from the coastlands will stand up and end the reproach of Antiochus into the coastlands. He'll end that. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Now he's going to reproach Antiochus. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is Antiochus here. So this is about, here in, in these verses, the, the end of Antiochus the Great and his reign. We'll be done talking about him in just a second. Let me explain how this worked. Um, so the coastlands is the Romans, and he actually went to attack them, and he took a decent amount of their land until the Roman general Lucius Scipio Asiaticus Say that five times fast. He routed Antiochus at Magnesia in 190 BC. Then Rome made Antiochus pay for the war and they levied him a 12,000 talent like payment that they had to give him over the course of 12 years. There was an initial down payment and there was like a thousand talents every year, which is a very large sum of money. Uh, that's a weight. A talent is a weight. And I don't remember the exact amount, but I, I believe it would weigh more than me in gold. And so it was a very large sum of money. Um, Antiochus III, his, the great, his youngest son was left hostage in Rome before Antiochus was allowed to leave. So then he goes back like he's whooped. Yeah, he's done some really great stuff. I mean, as far as militarily. But now at the end of it, he's embarrassed and he got whooped by the Romans. And so he heads back home, leaving one of his children in the control of the Romans. Then Antiochus goes from there. It says in verse 19, he shall turn his face toward the fortresses or the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is how he died. He has to get a lot of money now to pay the Romans, right? Well, his army's beat. He can't go steal it from others. So he tries to steal it from his own people by going into the temple of Jupiter at a city called Elam. And he goes in there at night trying to rob and steal from the temple where there's a lot of money and gold and stuff gathered. He was slain with his soldiers when the inhabitants of the town rose up and attacked him because of what he was doing. Justin records that for us. And so um, this was the end of Antiochus the Great. Uh, ends up being not so great in the end. <laughs> he's, he's caught, busted, stealing from his own people and they rise up against him. Um, so he is slain there. And then now we're going to read about his offspring. Verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or battle. In his place one comes up, and this is a taxer. That's what he's known for. This next king, according to the prophecy, is going to be known for taxing people. Well, Antiochus' son was a guy named Seleucus IV Philopater. 
And he taxes. That's what he does. That's all he does. For 12 years, that's all he did. And the Romans gave him a 12-year penalty. And so for the entire time of his reign, all he did was try to raise money to pay the Romans. And he um, sent a man named Heliodorus to plunder the temple in Jerusalem. That was one of the things he did. That this, this plundering failed. Heliodorus didn't succeed. Um, there's a colorful story about this in the book of Maccabees. Um, but for some reason, Heliodorus did not succeed, uh, possibly because of divine intervention. But he failed to plunder the temple. And it says here a few days. Well, it's th- this is a little beyond me, but, uh, but I trust the translators to say this. In fact, there are translations that translate this days as years. And um, a few days or a few years. And other, in other places in Daniel, days are looked at as years, specifically in this book. And so there's a context for that. Uh, this particular guy, this particular Seleucus, he reigned for 12 years versus his father reigning for 37 years. And so what we're looking at is the kingdom going sort of downhill and not uphill. You know, he, he, all he does is tax people and he doesn't reign for as long as his father, not even, not even a third of the time. Then he was destroyed. It says, not in anger or in battle. Well, he wasn't killed in battle. It wasn't for revenge. He was poisoned by Heliodorus, the very guy he sent to plunder the temple in Jerusalem, who was his treasurer. Heliodorus wanted to usher in the next king, which I think he wanted to be, guess who? Heliodorus. That's what he wanted. But instead, this all plays in to a plot for a guy that I talked about in Daniel 7 and 8, named Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's who we're going to talk about now. In his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now, for the rest of the time, we're going to be talking about this guy. Now, until verse 35, this is the guy we're focused on. Um, Antiochus greatly persecuted the Jews. He was very involved in what happened with Israel at the time. There's a, a, a focus on this uh, because, because it's about Israel. And God, they're the apple of God's eye, you know? And so it's about that. So now we focus on Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Antiochus III's, his, the, Antiochus the Great, this was his younger son that was held in hostage in Rome when he failed to conquer. This guy ends up being king. How does that happen? Well, here's how it happened. It says specifically here, right? He, he shall come and he shall seize the kingdom by intrigue. Well, after spending about 14 years hostage in Rome, he then arranges, while his brother, who is the taxer of the kingdom, right? He's the guy making all the taxes to pay Rome. He arranges to have his brother's son put into Rome and, hot, and, and put hostage instead of himself. So there's a prisoner exchange. He gets out, and his brother's son, who would be the heir of the kingdom, he goes in. Shortly thereafter, Heliodorus kills the current king, and Antiochus rises up, and through intrigue, through deal-making, he becomes the king. He makes a deal with the king of Pergamum to get his support. He then grabs his youngest nephew, because Demetrius, the rightful king, is now in Rome, hostage. He would be the next in line. The way it works is Antiochus... He's the, he's, the, he's the younger brother, so he, he, would ne- he was never in line for king. You were never in line. You're part of the family, but you're never in line for king. But what he does is he grabs his nephew, his youngest nephew, who is an infant, and he attaches the infant to himself and says, I'm going to you know, become co-regent just to nurse my infant nephew back into, and then he can. And of course, shortly after he becomes king, he kills his, his, his nephew. 
So he seizes the kingdom by intrigue. It's by deal-making. He's known for going out and giving lavish speeches to the royalty. He was known for going out and giving out money to the poor. And I think these are skills he learned at Rome. One of the dangers of being in Rome for 14 years is you start to learn how the Romans do things and how they work things, and you start to make some connections while he's there. Because even though he was there, he was royalty. He may have been a hostage, but he was still royalty. So... um, In his place shall arise a vile person. He is a vile person. He's a wicked person. He's a sick individual. We'll get into that. To whom they will not give the honor of royalty. He was not supposed to be given the honor of being the king. They didn't give it to him. He sort of seized it by intrigue. It was was taken. Um, But he shall come in peaceably. He didn't take it by battle or by war. And he seized the kingdom by intrigue, which we talked about. Um, So he was truly a vile individual. A vile individual. He had, was, was known for drinking. He had nasty habits that I don't want to describe to you that were unfit for the king. He would disguise himself as a commoner. He would go out amongst the people. He, when he was out amongst the people, he was known for just throwing rocks at random people. He just wanted to just throw rocks at people. He was just a twisted, sick guy. This is why the Jews came to, and many other people came to call him kind of a play on words. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the glorious, illustrious one, or possibly even God manifest. Boastful name. He gave himself this title. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. And it's kind of a play on words. You just switch the words out a little bit. And that's more, a more accurate description of this particular guy. So verse 22, with the force of a flood... They shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Who's the the they? Um, It seems to me that the they that will be swept away is probably the they from the previous verse who didn't give him the honor of royalty. Those who didn't pick him as king will be swept away before him. He'll... He'll successfully, you know, there were other people trying to become king. There were two in particular, Heliodorus and another guy. But they were swept away from before him. And they're broken. And it says, and the prince of the covenant. Now, who's this prince of the covenant? This is very possibly the high priest. Um, In his very first year of his reign, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes, um, this wicked man, Antiochus IV, I'll call him. He took the high priest, Onias, who seems like he was a good high priest from what we know of history, and he took him out of the high priesthood, and he put another guy in his place. And this guy was supposed to do what Antiochus wanted, basically try to make the Jews more Roman, and make them religiously more Roman, and and sort of strip away some of the religious aspects of Judaism. So the prince of the covenant um, shall be swept away from before him and and broken. And And eventually he was killed in 171 B.C., he was eventually uh, slaughtered, <coughs> murdered. Um, now, it's interesting that it says that it was a small group of people, a small number of people that, made, that brought him into power and made all this stuff possible. And this is really important to know. The number of people that have political opinions in a country is almost irrelevant. What matters is the number of people who are willing to actually do something about those opinions. The people that are willing to support candidates or willing to vote or willing to go out and, and attend a rally or willing to, to have conversations and, and maybe willing to start a, a, a group and promote certain values and certain ideas. And this is how even in, in America, a minority, a, minor, a, a very small minority of, of people who have a particular agenda when it comes to sexuality have been able to force it and thrust it upon a much larger group of people that don't want that. 
It's just because they're so active. They're so active. And many times in churches we hear about how we should, you know, let's just let's just focus on Jesus. Let's just focus on the gospel. And this is weird because, like, can I do both? Can I focus on Jesus and the gospel, like, and mow my lawn? Like, or, or like, you know, if, if my wife's like, honey, can you take the trash out? I'm like, honey, I'm just trying to focus on Jesus and the gospel. Like, I can't take the trash out. Like, can't I be politically active and focus on Jesus and the gospel? Can't I be using the gospel and Jesus as, as my method of how I will try to impact my culture? And of course, of course we can, and I think we should. And never underestimate the power of just one individual who's willing to stand up and say things and, and just do your best to try to affect the culture in, in wonderful directions. Um, because the wicked do it. <laughs> and Jesus, like he said, sometimes the wicked are more wise than the sons of the light when it comes to that kind of stuff. So uh, verse 24, it says, He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against them, against the strongholds, but only for a time. So he does a few things here. Um, Antiochus IV, he basically robbed the rich and gave small amounts of that to the poor and put the rest in his coffers. Political leaders know this. It's a sad reality. He probably learned this in Rome because this is how Rome was run as well. If I just offer the people a small amount of money, they won't care what I stand for. They'll vote for me. And this has become sometimes the way it's done is like who can promise the most? Who can, who can put money in your pocket or promise you this free thing or that free thing? And that becomes, you know, forget about their policies. Forget about how it will affect our country. Forget about if it's godly or righteous or not. It's going to mean I'll have more money or free stuff. And we, we shouldn't obviously make our decisions based on that. That's, that's how people are manipulated. But that's what he did. He did something. In fact, um, he went to not only his provinces and plundered his own, his own people to give money to other people so that he could just have enough people to follow him, but also to fund his wars. He also went out and he went out with his military. And when he would conquer an area, he would take of the wealth and he would give it to the troops. There have been previous kings who have been slaughtered by their own troops. But Antiochus wasn't going to fall into that trap because he was going to pay them. Now, Rome did this. You wanted to be a centurion because when you conquered an area, you got to claim stuff. You got to keep it. Hey, this is my land. This is my stuff now. And so this is, this is what he got, I think, from Rome. And, um, and previously they had not done this. This was not a, a northern kingdom thing to do. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. I think this was really important uh, to the Jews. The strongholds means he's going he's gonna to be making agendas to conquer big cities. But it's important to the Jews because he was going to be so oppressive and so hurtful and so hateful to them that it was really helpful for them to be able to look at Daniel and go, you know what? This won't last. This won't last. It's only for a time. They'll have victory, but only for a time. And this is a great word for us as believers today. No matter how dark the world is, no matter how much victory they seem to have, it is only for a time. It is only for a brief season. And we are going to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to keep our eyes on that, even as we face the things that are going on around us. Daniel 11.25, he says, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. 
So the king of the north will have an army, the king of the south will have an army, but the problem with the king of the south is that his own advisors, his own people who are at his table, will undermine him, and it will end up making him lose the war. In 170 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, he went against Egypt. Egypt tried to fight against him and failed. He beat Egypt, and he took a good chunk of their territory, in fact, a massive amount of Egypt. And then the, the king of the south, which at this point was Ptolemy VI, was given bad advice. He was given bad advice. In fact, it's blamed specifically on his counselors. He was very young at the time, so really he wasn't entirely in control. And the, and the, and the, uh, the advisors, and I have the names of them somewhere on here, but they gave him bad advice and said, yeah, go out here, go out there, go out there. Well, what happened is, is Antiochus sort of closed in on them. He took Memphis and he took other strongholds of Egypt, big important cities, and he closes in on Alexandria. And the advisors tell, take the king and get him on a boat and send him out out of here. Get him out of here. Well, in the long run, Antiochus never took Alexandria. But guess what he did do? He caught the king because he had fled the city. So those who ate with his own table, ate his delicacies, you know, they, they gave him this bad advice, possibly on purpose. Maybe it was, maybe it was a power play. Um, who knows? Who knows? Um, even then his brother, another, another one of the Ptolemies, he plotted against him. And then he became king, even though this king that just fled and was caught was still alive. He's a teenager at this point. So he's still alive and they already make a new king. So you, you get the sense that there's a plot going on. Um, it ends up being that he rules in Memphis and his, other, his brother now is ruling in Alexandria. And then they're just conflicted and it's not, things aren't going good. Verse 27 says, Both of these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper for the end will still be at the appointed time. Um, they actually had a meeting at Memphis, which had been conquered by Antiochus. He gives Memphis back. He sets up this particular Ptolemy. Okay, you're going to be king. You're going to be my puppet king is the idea. But when Ptolemy leaves, uh, excuse me, when Antiochus leaves, Ptolemy joins back with his brother in Alexandria. But that doesn't quite work out for them because they're, they're still betraying one another. And then Antiochus, and every, nobody's getting what they want. Nobody prospers out of this deal. So Antiochus fails to get his puppet, Ptolemy VI, he fails to get his kingdom, and his brother's still ruling in Alexandria, which uh, wasn't supposed to be how it goes, right? <laughs> Verse uh, 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. And we talked about this before. He attacked the Jews multiple times in his, in his time. He comes and his heart is moved against the holy covenant, not just against Judea, the area, but against Judaism. He's moved against Judaism. So he does damage and returns to his own land. In fact, Antiochus, we find, killed about 80,000 Jews, took 40,000 as prisoners, and, took, and sold 40,000 more to other people as slaves. He plundered the temple. He went to the temple in Israel, and he stripped the gold off the walls of the temple because he's, he's, he's moved against the Holy Covenant. He took the furniture and utensils and stuff out of the temple, stole them. Verse 29, at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter for ships from Cyprus. This is so interesting. Shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now, two years later, after all, after the stuff happened down in the south the first time in 168, Antiochus IV, he goes back and this time. Ptolemy VI, he meets him with a delegation. He's like, you know, you've been leaving your, you have a delegation of troops here in Egypt. We don't need them anymore. 
because they're, they're thinking we're bold enough, brave enough to rebel against him now. And so he starts fighting against them. He takes Memphis, he takes Cyprus, and now he is marching against um, uh, Alexandria again, back to that same spot. But when he's still in the realm of, in the range, you know, in the fields of Alexandria, a delegation from Rome meets him. Ships here from Cyprus or Kittim, depending on your translation. But this is, this is the Mediterranean area where they came from, not the city that he captured. And so ships from Cyprus meet him. He is met by a Roman delegation led by a guy named Gaius Papilius Laenus, I think. That's his, pronounce his name. Um, now this is where we get the phrase, what happens next is where we get the phrase lying in the sand. And here's how it went. Antiochus is there. He meets with just this sole Roman delegate who says, stop. Rome says, if you continue this fight, they don't want Syria to get that powerful. If you continue this fight against Egypt, you will be at war with Rome. And Antiochus says to him, okay, let me go consult with my counselors and I'll come back to you and give you my answer. And this is where Linnaeus comes and grabs his staff or his cane and he walks in a circle around Antiochus and draws a line in the sand. A circle around Antiochus. He says, I want your answer before you step out of that circle. Meaning, if you step out of that circle without su submitting, then you're going down. Rome will be battling you. And he didn't want to fight Rome. He remembers what happened to his dad. <laughs> and he knows from his time in Rome how powerful Rome has become. So Antiochus says, okay, we're out of here. He leaves. But on his way out, he is really mad. He's embarrassed. He's angry. He's frustrated. And he takes it out on the Jews. Because guess who's right there on his way home? The Jewish people. So he, he returns in rage against the Holy Covenant and does damage. Um, <coughs> shows regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He does all sorts of things against Israel at this point. Um, he puts up altars to Zeus. He, um, he uses the, the high priesthood. He sells it twice in the course of this time. Sells the high priesthood to the, the highest bidder. First a guy named Jason when he put Onias out of the high priesthood. And then this guy named Menelas who comes in who's going to basically turn Judaism into a Greek religion, a Roman Greek religion. That's what he wanted to turn it into. And this is um, some pretty horrific stuff. He outlaws and forbids them from being Jews. He says, you can't read the Torah. You can't own the Torah. You must burn all the Torahs. You can't circumcise your sons. You can't observe the Sabbath. You can't do any religious festivals or anything Jewish. He outlaws Jewishness at this point. Verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, the, the sanctuary speaking of the, the, the temple, and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, this is where he actually takes a altar, an idol of Zeus, and puts it in the temple, which he feels he's like Zeus. And so he puts that in the temple and then has a pig sacrificed to Zeus in the temple. Whew. This is hardcore blasphemous stuff that's going on here. We read about it also in Daniel chapter 8 in detail. Um, then he says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. People who are willing to forsake God, he's going to give them flattery and corrupt them with smooth words, lead them away from God. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So he does all these things and more. Um, he does what, what they call the abomination of desolation in verse 31. Jesus talks about that later. Uh, as a future reference, which is really interesting. Um, but the people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. Last time uh, we did Daniel 8, 
we talked about Judas Maccabee, who was the rebel leader and who succeeded in, in overthrowing, in the long run, Antiochus. And um, for the sake of time, we have to move forward. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days that shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. So some join them because of because they're sincere and genuine, and others join along because they're just going with the flow, or they're like, oh, maybe if we join you, we'll get money out of it, or whatever their intrigue reason was. Um, and so then this describes the Maccabean revolt, which, which became the Hasmonean dynasty, or a new new ruling party in Israel of Jewish people with Jewish goals. And then verse 35, our last verse for tonight. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And you get this sense in verse 35 of a pause. And then in verse 36, it picks up. That's actually future prophecy, I believe, my opinion is. Future prophecy about the Antichrist. And, um, and then into chapter 12, and it talks about the, this, it parallels with Revelation very well. It's really interesting stuff. But a great thing to learn here is God is using their pains to purify them. And he goes, yeah, some of you are going to fall, but it's going to be for your own purity. Well, what purity is there in death? It's like, well, death isn't the end. <laughs> it's, it's a purifying thing, and it's a glorious thing to even lose your life in the service of God for his goodness and his glory and his kingdom. And um, it's a good word for us. Now, there are about 135 prophetic statements in these 35 verses. And I just think it's amazing. And I've been very excited to go through this fulfilled prophecy with you guys. Most people don't have the patience for it. <laughs> but those who do receive a reward, I believe. And um, you wonder why these passages, you read this, and you're like, why is this in the Bible? It's confusing. It's in there to prove that the Bible is God's word. It's in there for the very purpose we have tonight, to say, hey, look, it's God. It's God. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word and for this truth that we know that um, it is your word. And if it's your word, it's true. And we can trust it and we can rely on it, Lord, and we can fall back on it and we can follow. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, help us to be able to share this truth with others. We pray for this video series that we're doing on evidence for the Bible and this teaching series here Sunday nights, that it would uh, continue to just minister to the saints and edify and build people up and that we would see people come to Christ because of the the truthfulness of your word. In Jesus' name.